Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas and throughout August we'll be revisiting our books roundups from previous years to give you a chance once again to hear recommendations from our writers and editors on subjects like Marcel Proust's letters, tech-ensnared science fiction and Euripides. In this episode there's also an interview with the Man Booker International Prize winner of 2017, David Grossman, and his translator Jessica Cohen. So today we're skipping back to 2017's Books of the Year, and introducing what he called the not-quite-legendary TLS special is our then-editor, Stig Abel. The way it works is that we, or rather Thea before she goes on holiday, asks trusted contributors either to recommend books we should be reading or tell us the books they will be reading over the summer. And we end up with a beautifully eclectic collection of titles, not all of which, it must be said, you'd expect to find at the sweaty end of a beach towel. So to help us discuss this and make our own recommendations, we're joined by two podcast regulars, Northern Indie Pop Star and TLS Arts Editor Lucy Dallas... Hello, I'm one of the pallid wrecks that you so gallantly (laughs) referred to earlier on. Exactly. Uh, And Emu McBride fanboy and TLS literary editor, Toby Lichtig. Hello, I'm the other pallid wreck. I'm the other pallid (laughs) wreck. I was including myself in the pallid wreck count. I've even been on holiday, so I have no I know, but you don't like the sun, do you? Well, I I like the sun, it doesn't like me. Yeah. Emu is one of the contributors to our summer books list. I was pleased, and no doubt you were pleased to see. I was pleased and excited Exactly. Toby has also interviewed the recent winner of the Man Booker International Prize, David Grossman. We'll be hearing that interview also in the programme. Right, so the way this podcast is going to break down, each of us is going to propose a TLS contributor whose holiday baggage we would most like to steal to take on our own holiday reflecting only on the book content it would contain, of course. Later on, we'll make some recommendations and confessions of our own, which is always fun, as few people read fewer entire books than literary journalists, in my experience. So we'll be testing how much we all actually read. So, kick us off. Thea, you've had a holiday. Pretend, I'm sure you're probably going on another holiday almost in the next month or fortnight. Well, yes, in fact, I am. (laughs) (laughs) I was being facetious, and you are. Okay. So who's holiday reading in the summer books list, <laughs> but seeing as you're virtually a professional holiday goer yourself? Well, that's why I orchestrated this whole, this whole feature, this basically, whole, just to farce. work out what to put into my suitcase. OK, so who, who would you recommend? Whose books would you steal? Well, how could I not be intrigued by Ian Sansom's choice? Go on. He has chosen June Caldwell's first short story collection, Room Little Darker, which is published by New Island Books. He says it promises to do for the Irish short story what Jeremy Corbyn has done for the Labour Party, which to me means... Take it to an extreme position. It will probably be, yes, bold, divisive, (laughs) a little bit confusing, (laughs) on the kind of broader sense, probably a good thing. Do you think... But I don't really know where she's going to stand on Europe. You're you're tempted by that? I think I'm tempted by that one. And anything else he's taking? He's taking quite a lot. He is. Well, all of our contributors seem to take quite a lot. Yeah. He talks about Vic James's dystopian gilded cage, a vision of a Britain ruled by the skilled over the unskilled. That does sound good. Toby, have you ever heard of that? I have not, no. No. This is is quite (laughs) a test for you, actually. Absolutely. What percentage would you say, Toby, of these books have you actually heard of? Heard of? Oh, 
87. How many have we reviewed or in the process of review? Most of them. I'd say think. most. I'd say most of them. Yeah. I mean, some some of them aren't even new books, but yes, yeah, most but, so, so, certainly the novels. But it's interesting. He wants to take short stories uh, on holiday. I wouldn't. I like a nice novel. But you're not a you're not a I'm fan, not a fan of, of form. I'm not, would you take short? You would take short stories. Well, I mean, I took David Saloy's, and that yeah, is yeah, cool. it's interconnected Ooh. short stories. Although, yeah, although obviously it did make the shortlist for the Man Booker Prize, it, so it, it is technically did. a novel. Yeah. But, yeah. But no, no, is it any good? Did you I like think it? it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wish it had won the Booker. I, I loved it. Agreed. And you then you obviously that's that conversation over. So you're yes. It's radio gold. Can you disagree? Yes, me too. Can you disagree? No, I haven't read it, so I can't have an opinion either way. I just pretend you don't like it, Lucy. No one else. Yeah, Lucy, go on. Who's whose holiday baggage are you taking? Well, I kind of feel I ought to take Jennifer Howard's because I like the sound of Jennifer Howard. Do like a bit of tech ensnared science fiction? What's she taking? She's taking William Gibson's The Peripheral, but I've never read a word of William Gibson. I'm afraid. Have you not? No. Despite being a sci-fi fan, science fiction, as we call it, um, that's, what sci- that's what sci-fi stands for, surely. It, yeah, but it's you're not a, allowed to call it sci-fi. No, I don't think you is are. I can't remember who, who doesn't S- like SF. To call it that. Is another one, isn't I it? I think and SF all is all right. Is that okay? And sci-fi is sort of demeaning. I don't. Know. Is it? I don't. Know. But you've I not read remember. any William Gibson? No, I haven't. I've reviewed. I had to review William Gibson for the TLS. Uh, Gibson fan. Back in the day. No, I found it really arch, and it was about. It was about. A sort of strange thing about a brand being sort of a quest for a holy brand or something. It was very, it was very knowing. Mm. I had to review it with Ian M. Banks and someone and Ch- China Mieville. So China Mieville's oh, book was about a giant talking. squid. Yes, Kraken. It's an excellent. Book. So you like that? Yes. And then Ian M. Banks was about these giant ships and and, and planets like hell. And I, I, it was kind of all right, but I just I find the whole thing I find science fiction baffling. Well, also Kraken's not really science fiction. What is, is it, it then? Fantasy? Yeah, oh, it's kind of yeah. It's a kind of mixture of all sorts of so things. So do you are you but you are a science fiction fan? But but I'm not an aficionado. Okay. So I'm not one of those people that's read all of Brian Aldiss and Asimov. I mean I know who they are, but I haven't read it all. So who is your like who's who's your sort of science fiction? China Mavel. I like China Mavel when he's just when, it's not science fiction. When he's no some of it is science <laughs> oh, really? fiction. Because that crazy bonkers one about language. Embassy he, town. He appears in this list somewhere, Charlie Does he? Neville, doesn't he? Yes. He's not the only person I've you, ever read. You reviewed by the his way. most recent one for us. I did. That wasn't science that fiction wasn't either. Science. That was what was that then? Bonkers. That <laughs> was about. Um, it was about a, 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 a an alternative Paris trapped in a loop in the Second World War. That sounds like um, science fiction to in me. In which no, no, it's perfectly real. <laughs> in which um, surrealist creations came to life on the streets and battled the Nazis and the resistance kind of could sometimes join up with the surrealists so like oh, what was the name of it Toby that the famous one the man oh, with the, the Breton. train the Breton one. yeah what yeah. was his name though the exquisite corpse so surrealist creation so it's really lingered in your mind though, yeah, no, no, that's no, the I'm, main not, thing. I'm not making it sound exciting it, is, but was, it, was it a good was. book but that's science. Yes. How is that not science fiction? That's about an alternative reality where where things are battling in a sort of. I tell you what I think is interesting about. It. Well, I think there's all sorts of interesting things about science fiction. There is two sorts anyway, and yeah. one of them actually really thinks about what might be possible in the future. One of them just goes, "Imagine we could all teleport and, we, and everyone had twenty arms and you just make things up." That's Isn't just fiction, the famous Margaret Atwood distinction between. It's a kind of general. Yeah. I mean, she 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 may have talked about it. What did she say? Well, she she described her her books at, not as science fiction because science fiction is concerned with stuff that is not really feasible right now, whereas her books are concerned with the kind of the beginnings of things, terrible realities, dystopian realities yeah. that are already underway. They're kind okay. of thought experiments, but all fiction is a thought experiment, it seems to me. Mm. Are people who like science fiction, Lucy, and I'm sensing this, a little defensive of the subject? I'm already <laughs> feeling defensive and you haven't asked the question. No, because I know that's my, that is my question. What? They are defen- There's a kind oh, of defensive... Well, that's because people are very snotty about it. But as soon as something becomes good, people don't say it's fiction any- It's science but fiction But Terry anyway. Pratchett kind of talks about that, about fantasy fiction mm, as well, didn't yeah, he? He said that he, you know, he yeah. would have won awards, the argument goes, if he'd written about a world that didn't have sort of an elephant on a turtle and witches and wizards. Because well, surely it's all, it, it's all part of that general shift towards including genre fiction mm. in, in, a, in a not condescending way. Genre like a, fiction can be just as, as good as any... 
normal fiction. And and as, 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 as soon as anything's fiction. good, it's described as literary fiction. Exactly. 1984, I, I, and everyone yeah. goes, oh, that's a classic. No, that's not science fiction. That's not dystopia. That's not, you know, but it, but it is. So I'd make the opposite case that genre fiction is, is the place where the most happiness of reading can be found. But it's Because it, it, it knows what it's aiming to do. It's aiming... This is why sort of postmodern fiction is such a continued kick in the shins because it doesn't ha- it doesn't have your pleasure at its heart. It has the sort of intellectual play of the author. It good stuff does, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you can. think? Yeah, yeah good if you, stuff if you, does. If, if you enjoy terribly enjoyable playful word games and playful narrative games, but that's not what your pleasure is. Yeah, that, but yeah. that's not that's not why it's. I often find it's it's written more for the pleasure of writing than for reading. Postmodern fiction. I would in fact define postmodern fiction as more fun to write than to read. Well, but that just means it hasn't. It's not very good. Yeah, I think. But, but I think the Whereas failure, when it's good, then it is fun. But I think the failure rate of. Do you not think postmodern fiction failure rate is is think, dauntingly I, high? I think. I think when it's done badly, it's particularly bad because there's sort of a lack of honesty to its badness. Cause that's, it, cause it always yeah, thinks it's clever. Fun. Yeah, that's very fair. Lucy, I interrupted you. Gone. So you take Jennifer Howard? Is that who you're? Oh no! Well, no, I wouldn't. Okay. Um, boringly, that's a boring preamble. Yeah. Uh, no, I'd also take because she's taking Barbara J King's personalities on the plate, the lives and minds of the animals we eat. Yeah. Which I feel I ought to read, but then we had a very I think nice then I wouldn't be able to eat anything ever again. I bet if I read it. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff about about the yeah, the lives of animals. So go on. Who and are about you? About octopuses who I love. Which I love, who oh, I love, <laughs> and I don't eat them because they're so intelligent. Really? Do yeah, not? no, seriously. Do you I eat squid because squid are thick. Do you eat pork? But octopuses. We had a piece mm. about yeah. that, didn't we? Yeah. Like, a yeah. few years ago. No, I'm sure. I don't want to diss the squid, but octopuses are but really you, intelligent. But, but pigs are intelligent. I know. Do you eat pigs? I've got a bit of a problem with it. And let's move on. <laughs> what, the one I'd really like to say. I've got a bit of a problem with pigs. We may have exposed the paradox there. I'm not 100% consistent being a no. human being okay. as I am. Okay, go on. But the one that I would like to take, actually, is the... This sounds pretentious. Yes. Is the letters of Marcel Proust to I his neighbour. I thought this was great. Because it great. sounds go great. Explain this, go on. Who, who's that? Who's well, taken it's, that? Um, well, Anna-Katerina Schaffner um, has taken it. And it's translated by Lydia Day. Davis, who is wonderful as well, and so also I imagine contributes the translation to, is wonderful. to this feature. Yeah, she has her own suggestions to make, and he—I didn't realise this—that he lived below um, a dentist, which must be the worst possible, like a dentist practice in Paris, must be the worst possible place to live if you are a kind of neurotic, sound-sensitive <laughs> writer dentist who stays even, at home all the time. The dentist wasn't even the reason that he ended up corklining his room, was it? It was the other neighbour. I believe. Was, that was right? it? Was yeah. it the other I think one? So. I think there was an American a... lady who, who lived above yeah. or below him or next door. Was yeah. he, he, the, the, the book is the letters to the French wife of an American dentist who lived above him. And um, it says, the letters to his neighbour elevate the passive-aggressive complaint to an art form. Yeah, I think they should uh, come to spend a week at the TLS if they want to see the pa- passive aggression being raised to an art form. I don't know what Stig means. Does anyone know what Stig means? I don't know who no. you've been talking no, to. No, I don't know what, I don't know what I occasionally get passive-aggressive emails uh, about the content of the TLS. Not from us. Not from, no, no, no. Oh, right. from, from, from disgruntled From disgruntled people. Oh yes, yeah. yeah. And it's always and what I love about complaints to, to the TLS is they can they don't have, they get loads of them. I don't want to overstate the problem, uh, but when a letter <laughs> of complaint comes in, it says, "Why have you done this?" And then I reply very politely, and then I get a response saying, "Well, I didn't think you'd respond. Well, why did you write it then?" <laughs> Of course I'm going to respond. You just said, I think your selection of this article, or if, if I've written it, your writing of this article is substandard and you are a fool, effectively. I didn't think you'd respond. So it's a warning. If you're listening, I always respond. I always respond. <laughs> yeah. So far, he always responds politely. I, always, I do respond politely. No, you well. do. I'm, I'm amazed at the, yeah. the politeness of which Toby Lishtig. Who no, are you stealing from? I, I was rather taken with Clive Stafford-Smith's band. Oh, yeah, it's oh no, it's a, going no, mostly just because there's a really nice mix. So there's the Ice by uh, Laleen Paul, which just uh, looks like a good old honest um, dystopian uh, sci-fi, dare I say, oh, dare. Uh, thriller about oh, melting ice caps. Say, Lucy will stop throwing things at you. I um, mean, it's always quite nice reading about ice when you're sitting on, on warm sand. Yes, um, good. There's Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, which I have never read, Stig Abel, and also, I know <laughs> Stig is looking at me. I cannot believe like I'm like, yeah. like there's something deeply wrong with me, and which I actually took. I, I have recently been on holiday, and it was the it was the third book which I never got. You never to. got to. Uh. So I've already taken it to Spain, but it's gonna it's gonna come with me on the next. I jaunt. think it's, it's in. Pile. I think it's one of the top novels of the 20th yes, century, uh, like up with it, Lolita. It's and, one of my great lacunae. I, yeah. I, I don't know why I haven't read it. But and I'm George Berridge, who that. also works at the TLS, uh, is a great McCarthy 
fan. He Certainly loves is. it. I mean, I so, love Cormac McCarthy. It's just one I haven't read. And it's, the, and it's the one, if you had to read one Cormac McCarthy novel, it's, it's absurdly violent. It's very creepy. It's set in the sort of 19th century... Uh, west of America. A lot of scalping going on. Yeah, have you read it? Yeah. Did you like it? Ears as necklaces. Yeah, there's a lot of ears of necklaces. Lots of beans on campfires, which is the nicer side of things. I love a bit of it, because when I went went camping, or glamping, it was glamping, it wasn't camping, (laughs) but I took all the pretty horses, because it's very fun to be camping, or glamping, and reading about people who are actually sort of walking around in the rain. They're not glamping. You wouldn't really want to be reading Blood Meridian, I don't think, if you were camping in the the wilds. No. In all the pretty horses, all you do is you sort of you pretty much eat beans for every meal and your hat gets mm. wet and it's and it, and it feels nice to be reading in comfort to to that but did you like Blood Meridian? I did, I did. I mean, it was years and years ago, so it's a bit. Mostly, I just remember the extreme violence and yeah, and the kind of aridity yeah, of dark, it all right. and the heat and and well, but yes, but very very full of flourishes. Yes, yeah, well. it's, it's not it's that both, stark. It's both yeah, it's both stark that. and and very you know he'll he'll take a sentence and all of a sudden turn it in a in a, in a particular way and you'll see the horizon, the particular colours or something. And I think he does that to a fault sometimes with Cormac yeah. because sometimes it makes it sort of easy to parody. I think that's exactly because he becomes ponderous and he becomes sort of pseudo mystical and, and mm. Blood Meridian certainly and you saw it in the, and the road is a kind of attenuated version of Blood Meridian so it's a much more restrained because Blood Meridian is longer there's much more colour I mean just from a colour point of view the road is basically set in a grey world of greyness and the word grey is repeated like 400 times in the text Blood Meridian has all of these exotic sunsets and, mm. and, the, and blood obviously red it's got much it's much more multicoloured it's such an ex- when I first read it I just couldn't believe it. It's one of those books you put down and you just look around and sort of point. Have you seen that? That's mm. just that's sort of it's mind mind. And the character blown. of the judge, yeah, um, he's just one of the character. He's so well crafted yeah. as, as a kind of a, a complete evil. Yeah, I mean, frightening character. I can't wait to go on holiday again, if only just to read well, Meridian. Follow Theo. She, she does every every month. You, you'll, I, be I to, you'll be able to. You'll be able to. And then, and then the, th- the third choice in Clive Stafford Smith's yeah. selection is um, Tom Holland's Rubicon: The Triumph and Tragedy of the Roman Republic. And I don't read enough of this sort of thing. I don't read enough history books. I popular history. Popular history. Yeah. I, I, I love a bit of it. I love reading a bit about ancient Rome. You know, my my day job. I read a lot of fiction, and I read a lot about contemporary politics and it's quite nice there's something deeply escapist for me you should read spqr by the beard yes absolutely that's That's another that's another example of uh, of uh, and also his final books i will be able to end this part quickly because i'm agreeing with you toby that's the clive stafford smith is the gentleman i would mug for his baggage because he finishes on sj paris's giordano bruno which is a historical fiction he says his first love is historical fiction and in many ways i agree with that i read an awful lot of historical fiction and I do like I know it's naff and it's uh, the idea of these sort of pseudo detectives so from a time before detective existed you always got to find someone who's going to be a detective dressed in other clothes we were talking about the Falco books in the office the other day the the Lindsay Davis Falco books and that was he was an informer wasn't he yes Um, and then worked for various emperor but she did like 15 of those books yeah they were very and they're uh, they're successful and they're good good. and there's the other um, Sansom was the other one isn't he CJ CJ Sansom who did the Hunchback Lawyer books I get the feeling you're looking blankly at me historical fiction Um, not so much detective fiction a bit of mostly the Italian stuff is that good uh, some of it is very good. Some of it. Who would you is recommend not. as an Italian detective? Well, I mean, Camilleri's is the kind of the don in that in that respect. One book that was a sort of an Italian detective that I I did really enjoy was um, a few years ago was Nicola La Gioia. It came out. And it was published by Einaudi in Italy, and then who published it here? I think it was Europa Editions, and I can't remember what its translator title was. But in Italian, it was called La Ferocia, which was I guess you would translate as the Furious. Okay, um, that's, that's a top recommendation, Lisa. You're you're not you know historical fiction. You're, you're just a no, sci-fi. No, I love you're just pure pure I sci-fi. Love historical buff. fiction. I've read A Place of Greater Safety more than once. Did you finish it both times? Yeah, absolutely, really? I did. This oh, is the Hilary Mantel book about the French Revolution, and which it's is bigger da- than two bricks. It's dauntingly long. Did you ever finish Man on a Donkey? We discussed this in the podcast yeah. a few weeks ago. Yeah. The greatest <laughs> historical novel yeah. ever written. Perhaps. Do you know what? I've still got it on my desk, uh-huh. and I have not finished it. I'm, maybe I'll take on. Hold- I'll have it as one of my recommendations, what I'm going to be taking. Uh, it, just so I think, uh, The one book I want to just talk about, because none of us are realistically going to read it, but Hal Jensen writes for us on bibliography very, very beautifully, and he says this as one of his summer books. This summer, I'm looking forward to the latest survey of the editorial scene by Peter Schillingsberg. Textuality and knowledge, essays... 
Focused on materiality, it includes chapters on how literary works exist, the semiotics of bibliography, and long-distance revision. That is a man who loves his job. <laughs> he does he's also a fantastic of... theatre critic and writes, writes you know, great yeah. fiction reviews yeah, exactly. as well but... he, he, yeah exactly he's a fantastic critic of all respects but that is a person yeah. who uh, yeah. who loves what he does and Peter Thoneman oh, who yeah. is yeah. not, not afraid of a busman's holiday is going to read Iphigenia at Outlist why again. is that Lucy Dallas because he remembers a girl who played Iphigenia who looked like Maria Callas who yeah. he fell in love with. Instantly and hopelessly in love with. Yeah. It's like it's been written by a historical novelist. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, he's, he loves a bit of Euripides. Yeah, and he says, I can hardly wait to revisit this extraordinary play. It's enough to make you want to teach classics for a living. Which, like, you know, I like Iphigenia and I all this a lot. No, but isn't, do doesn't, doesn't he teach classics? He does. He does. That's, that's, yeah. I think that's a, a knowing nod. Yeah. Um, right, we shall return to bring our own recommendations. But last week, David Grossman won the Man Booker International Prize for the year's best fiction in translation. His translator is Jessica Cohen. His book A Horse Walks Into a Bar is set around a stand-up comics confessional routine in an Israeli comedy club. Gabriel Josipovici gave it a generally grudgingly admiring review in the TLS, saying Grossman, like John Osborne, is pitch perfect, capturing the atmosphere of the cynical and vulgar new Israel to perfection. But he thinks that the book is marred, as so often in Grossman's fiction, by his need to wring the withers of his readers by which he meant too much sentimentality for his taste. Toby here sat down with Grossman soon after his win and his translator Jessica Cohen, who is going to share the prize, £50,000 prize with him. Toby began by asking Grossman how he felt about the win. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, It means uh, to get wider recognition and uh, to have my book read by many more people. And above all, the feeling that I was understood, which is never taken for granted, not even in the Hebrew. And Jessica? Um, Well, as a translator, which is kind of by definition a a behind-the-scenes kind of work that tends to be in the shadows, this prize is, is unique in that it gives equal recognition to translators, and that is hugely significant for me and I know for all of my fellow translators, so that that really means a lot to me to be recognized in this way and to kind of get the message out to readers who read translations that they're reading the work of two people. And do you feel that generally and historically translators haven't been sufficiently recognised? Would you say that's a a, a fair thing to say? You know, it's a generalisation, but yes, on the whole, I think, you know, I, I still encounter a lot of people who really have no idea what it is that translators do and assume it's basically typing in another language. <laughs> Obviously, there are people who, who understand what it means, but especially in the English-speaking world, so much of what we consume is in English that we don't stop to think about what everyone else is reading and producing and writing. And in other countries, that's not the case because they import a lot from English and it's translated and they do have more of an awareness of what translators do. And in this particular case, what is it that translators do in terms of your collaboration? Because obviously, David, you speak fluent English. Um, I was, I'm always interested in when an author has their work translated into a language they know well. So how, how does it actually work between you two? Um, well, I mean, as you said, uh, David's English is, is excellent. It's fluent, which is both a blessing and a curse for a translator because it means I'm the only one whose work he can check up on. But it's a good thing on the whole because it does make it a collaborative process and I'm able to get his input and his feedback and be pretty certain that I'm saying the things that he meant to say when he wrote the book. So it's it's always been collaborative and um, it's a pleasure for me. I, I, I never dare to doubt what uh, Jesse is doing because, uh, I mean, you are very generous to say I have good English, but I know it's not... I, I know how a good language should... Uh, sound, yes, uh, from the Hebrew. Uh, and, and I can just pose some questions to Jesse, asking her, are you sure that this is the right nuance of the word, the right melody of the word? But uh, in, in this book and in the one that preceded it, uh, we, we did something unusual. Uh, we gathered together uh, 12 uh, translators from different countries into a little literary translation center in the border of Germany and the Netherlands and uh, we we worked there for a week uh, in which I read the whole book to my translators paragraph after paragraph and then we all started to look for solutions to all kind of problematic places 
And we notice the differences between the different languages and the different psychology of the language and the psychology of the translator. And there were all kinds of, of words that there was something unclear how to translate. For example, the word ubar in Hebrew means fetus. But I think in Italian there are three, or, or Catalan, there are three different phases of the pregnancy of the fetus, of the embryo. So which one did I uh, mean, they, they asked me. Not always I knew the answer. For me as a writer, it was a really unusual experience because I had to sit there with 12 very opinionated, critical people who knows this story, not by heart, but from within the DNA of it. And they scrutinized every sentence. And I felt when, when we were done with it, I felt really I stood the harshest test possible for, for a writer. And yet I will happily do it in the, in the next book because when they were there, I think they were able to hear the melody with which I read and wrote. I, I'm reading and I have written <laughs> the, the story. And the melody is very important because uh, literature is music. Uh, and, and every sentence has its musicality. So I was able to sing for them. It seems like a, a fantastic way of doing it. And I, have you heard of anyone else using that process before? Or is, is it, was this something you devised yourself or you just discussed with your translators and, and came up with the idea together? Uh, both. I thought I invented it. And then I heard that uh, once Ginter Grass did it with uh, his translators. It completely makes sense to me. So, yeah. Um, I wonder if we can talk a little bit about the novel itself. Could you... Tell me a little bit about what it's about. How would you describe it? It's a stand-up comedy session in a rundown nightclub in the city of Natania, a small city on the shore of the Mediterranean, in Israel, of course, when the, where the stand-upist, the comedian, Dovele Greenstein, is seven, uh, 57 years old. Towards the end of his career, he's bitter, he's aggressive, he's shrewd, he's vulgar, and he also is yearning for love and exposed and very vulnerable inside. And in the beginning of the, of the book, he starts the usual tango of the performer and the audience. He teases them, he flirts with them, he insults them. They are insulting him. There is a kind of aggressive dialogue between the two parties. And in the audience, amongst all the strangers, there are two people he knew when he was a child. We do not know if both of them came uh, voluntarily or that he invited them. There is a small lady, very small, with a, she's a borderliner. And she didn't know even that he is the performer, but the moment he entered the stage, she is shocked because she knew him when they were children in a small neighborhood in Jerusalem. And he does not remember her. But he starts to feel that somewhere in the audience there is a focus of unaccepting him, of reluctance from him. And I think I heard it from performers that even in a crowd of thousand people, they spot immediately the one who is not surrendering to their charm, to their magic, to their spell. And of course, this one becomes a target. They need to convert him or her to liking them. And he starts to talk with her in his usual aggressive way until he realized that she was his neighbor in, in Jerusalem. And then he asked her, what's the matter with you? Aren't my jokes good? And she said, no, they are evil. And, and then she says, but you were a good boy. And these simple and naive primal words, they crack him open suddenly. They touch a point in him that he cannot resist and then suddenly the story of his childhood bursts out of him in a volcanic power that he could not control. It's obviously an extremely moving and emotional story. I'm, aside from your own work as a translator, Jessica, I wonder if you can just tell me how you felt as a reader um, with this novel. It, it is, it's a pretty um, draining and gut-wrenching kind of story. Um, to me also, there's an aspect of the book that hasn't been talked about much in the reviews that I've seen that, that I found very compelling, which is this theme of observation. There's a lot of observing going on. I mean, and the, the narrator's a judge, isn't he, which is exactly. not so, unimportant. So, yeah, the book is narrated by, by a member of the audience who is a judge, who, you, who was a childhood friend of the comedian. The comedian calls him up 
and says, I want you to come and see me. They have had no contact for, for decades. And he says, I want you to watch my show. And the judge doesn't really know what's going on, but he goes and he watches. And so we have him describing his observation of the comedian and also of the audience. There's a lot of descriptions of the audience's responses and the way in which you know, one response dictates how the rest of them respond and the ways in which they can and cannot handle what's going on on stage and some of them are so uncomfortable that they leave and I love the descriptions of, you know, their their faces and their expression and their voices and their body language as they react to what they're being told and so I like all these levels of observing um, and really that is what a good comedian does, right? They observe human beings and they synthesize those observations into some kind of humorous take on it. Part of the observing and looking and witnessing uh, is a need that is expressed by the friend of Dovalet, the judge, of having a person in his life that will look at him with sympathetic eyes, who will be a sympathetic witness. And I think it's something that every, everyone deserves. Maybe the government should legislate a law that every citizen deserves a sympathetic witness that because if somebody looks at us with sympathetic eyes, he or she enables us to be better than what we are. And and the, the opposite of sympathetic eyes is not uglifying eyes, but indifferent eyes. And and I think I was privileged and I I, I hope many are to be looked at with, with these sympathetic eyes that suddenly that formulated to me what I can be, what I never believed I can be. Yes, I wanted to qu- quickly ask you, um, J- Jessica, in a recent interview, um, you were talking about Israeli literature in translation uh, in general, and you were saying that when it comes to Israeli literature in translation, that you, um, you don't think people are particularly interested um, in reading a domestic drama that happens to take place in Israel, i.e. Uh, we have a thirst to hear about the, the political situation and and you know all the things that are going on there, as opposed to just normal family stories. And I just wondered, David, if you could talk a little bit about how you feel as an author having to deal with the political situation over there. You know, there's often I find with the translation, uh, the translated Israeli fiction I read, there's often you know you have the Holocaust in the in the background, you have the occupation in the foreground, and I wonder to what extent you feel burdened by that or, or freighted by it yourself. It is a burdening dimension in my life, uh, the situation in which I live. Uh, It has affected me and my family in in the worst way. I feel a need when I am facing this uh, motionless situation and this feeling of being paralyzed, becoming indifferent, becoming cynical. All these things are, are things that I need to understand how they change people and what is the way to liberate ourselves from this almost spell of doing nothing in order to change and to improve our situation. It is amazing. Israel is is a country that is so daring and innovative in every walk of life and only in the, the place that it's the most crucial for us and maybe because it's the most crucial for us we are we are paralyzed. We are unable to do anything but there is not, you know, when I'm talking with right-wing people, they say, well, what are you complaining about? We have this status quo going on for 50 years since 1967, since the beginning of the occupation. And the Palestinians got used to it from time to time. There is an eruption of violence, like the, those wars in Gaza. And then we go back to square one and everything is, is okay. I think that there cannot be status quo in a place where people are and where subjugated and humiliated people are. It is impossible. It will erupt and explode in, in a much more violent way than the ones that we uh, knew. Maybe as a writer I have this you know, instinct that this drive to, to change things, to motivate things, to generate another reality, to see the, the chances and the challenges in every reality, in every human condition, rather than to surrender to the obstacles and to the difficulties that exist. It is a very difficult situation. It's, I will not say desperate, because I cannot allow myself or afford myself the luxury of despair. Israel was created, and the wonderful, great idea of the creation of the state of Israel so that we shall not be victims again. And 
it freaks me out to see Israel, the strong, with all its huge potential, to see it looking at itself as a passive victim of the situation, of history, of the mistakes and crimes of our partners or our enemy. I cannot accept it. I mean, uh, we, we are so strong that we can afford ourselves to take the challenge and the calculated risks in order to achieve a solution, a fair solution between us and the Palestinians. They will have their independent and sovereign state as they deserve. They don't, I wish they don't live under our occupation and our pressure. I don't want to cast any shadow on them. I don't want them to cast shadow on me. And if I am occupier, I am shadowed. And, and I want Israel to have all the guarantees to its security and to its future. I look at my government, I look at my prime minister, I see a person who is a genius in the way he is knowing how to stir together the real dangers that Israel faces, and we do face real dangers in the Middle East, but he knows how to stir them together with the echoes of past trauma. And we, the Israelis, as a traumatized community, we are totally helpless in front of such manipulation. So against that, I think, I'm rebelling with all my soul. So would you say that the refusal of apathy in, in both your fiction and your, your political writing makes you to some extent an optimist? Realist. <laughs> <laughs> Toby Lishtig talking to David Grossman and Jessica Cohen. Toby, is this a worthy winner? Yes, it's, it's quite hard for me to give a, a full answer, given that I didn't read the entire shortlist, let yeah. alone the entire long list. But it's, a, it, it's, a, it's an extremely is it powerful book. Is it recognised as a good winner? It is recognised as a good winner. It's a very powerful book. He is a major author. He is one of the big beasts of Israeli literature. It really is, you know, these days it's Amos Oz, probably is num- number one if we're going to rank them. But David, he was also on the list. He was also on the list for a book I didn't like very much. So I was really? quite glad it didn't win. Yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> Judas, it was called. Um, what was I wrong m- with it? I much prefer Grossman's book. And yeah, Grossman's probably the sort of the, the number two. And he's. But I, I think he's possibly even a better writer. He can be sentimental. I've, I've read a few of his books, and, and maybe sentimental is not quite the right word. He, he definitely lays it on thick, but he deals with very, very big and weighty themes. What was um, wrong with the Oz book? The Amos Oz book, it was incredibly schematic. Um, I just, it, was, you know, it was a book about Israel um, through the character uh, of, a, of, a, of a man who has to kind of grapple with his, uh, his beliefs in God and, 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 and sort of vary, you know, the... the various tropes like Jerusalem stood for the old and Tel Aviv stood for the yeah. new and it just you just sort of felt there was no real need for it is Israel I was thinking about this oh there's a period of South African fiction where every time you read a book set in South Africa the character of South Africa was like the most it, dominant character you know if it's a book in South Africa it was about South Africa absolutely it's the same true of Israel um, uh, it, it's often true but it's also often true of the books from Israel that we get in translation now I'm sure there are Many, many books published in Israel and Hebrew that have absolutely nothing to do with, the, for example, the Palestinian conflict or the state of Israel and the state of the nation. But I think the stuff that that, trend, that, well, that publishers probably rightly um, believe is going to get read over in England and America is the more kind of weighty state of the nation stuff. So it's, it's more a facet of what gets translated, I think. It'd be nice in a way to have a novel, an Israeli novel, winning something that was just a novel about human life that wasn't necessarily focused on, on the politics. Absolutely, and I, and I think Grossman's novel is to a certain extent. I mean, it's got, it's got various strands to it, but yeah, it's, it's not just a novel about, about politics. And do we think this is just final before we go to the, the summer books? This is an important prize, it's a worthy the prize. The Man Booker International, yeah. yes, absolutely. In many ways, I think it's more interesting and exciting than the Man Booker itself. I mean, you know, you've got all the countries of the world that don't speak English, that's quite a few of them. And again, the, the sorts of books that tend to get translated are often better than than books that just get you know published run, run them all books and the translators get some of the money it's crucially. fantastic that the translators get some of the money this only started last year so it's it's an amalgamation of what used to be the um the um the independent foreign fiction prize and a man booker international prize um so they changed the format and in the new format there's fifty thousand pounds you said which is split between twenty five thousand each the translator and the author, um, him or herself, which is great because translators often don't get recognition or sufficient recognition, and, and it's fantastic for the whole industry. And they often don't get the cash. And they often don't get the cash. So it's, yeah, I mean, J- Jessica Cohen was, was rightly delighted. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay then, so back to our summer books issue. Time for everyone to tell us what books they will be taking on holiday or another holiday if you're Thea this year. Points will be deducted for virtue signalling and evident fabrications. Toby Lichty, I'm looking at you in terms of the over the over literary recommendations for historical fiction last time you were on. War and Peace, I'm War sorry about pe- that. Yeah. War so and Peace, sorry, yeah. uh, Thea. Well, I've, I already told you what I what I did take. Yeah, so we now, now we, need, we, need, so we need to be future can, looking. Yes, yeah, so I can tell you that that was very, very good. Yes, uh, stop what stalling, I'm currently stop stalling. Reading, what I'm currently reading is uh, a book, well, both of them came out a couple of years ago. That's okay. Because I think summer books is a time for catching up. Indeed. Um, and my TLS standards a couple of years ago is not old. Well, exactly. I've got The End of Absence by Michael Harris. Okay. The subtitle is Reclaiming What We've Lost in a World of Constant Connection, which okay. is a terrible, yeah. terrible subtitle. But it does. it's basically, I'm reading it alongside a collection of essays by Rebecca Solnit called um, The Encyclopedia of Trouble and Spaciousness, which collects essays, well-known ones by her and, and uh, lesser-known ones which kind of range from studies of the water, the politics of water in the west of America, to accompanying her on a trip that she took to the Arctic with a bunch of other writers and um, scientists and so on. And it's basically because at the moment I'm really obsessed with this notion of space (laughs) and solitude. So that I'm sort of reading them alongside... Um, and you're other. a fan of the essay form, aren't you? I am, yes. And you think? Do you think Solnit is a is a fine proponent of that? I do, I a, do. A I Didion think, for our time. Yes, but also very, very different to Didion. Um, although she does well, I would say what what Solnit excels in is she creates unusual connections. Uh, she connects things that you wouldn't necessarily think of connecting, and she's also not afraid to, you know, work within the essay form, but completely take it apart. So one one of the first essays in inverted commas in in the collection that I've mentioned is uh, called I think it's called Cyclopedia of uh, Arctic Exploration, and so you get the fir- it's it's exactly that it's it's sort of like a dictionary of it really. So you've okay. got the first entry which is anchor chain, um, and so she says the hideous booming clatter that awoke me on our first morning out. The chains were huge beasts in the stern of the boat that rattled like the end of the world, um, and then she runs through uh, you know pages and pages and then you get to zodiac which is a black rubber raft used for all landings in the wild a rubber ring as black as the night bearing the arctic zodiac in which the constellations are different and one is born under the sign of the fox walrus ring seal whale polar bear reindeer pink jellyfish ivory gull spiral snail scurvy grass cod and mosquito so she has a lyrical quality to her writing and i think what works very well in her collections of essays is that you'll get something like that just before you get a really good investigative piece about the historical politics of water, as I mentioned, in, yeah. in the American So West. it's not just sort of exuberant style, there's, there's, there's a sort of core to it. You get both. 
So there you recommend that's We've got an essay actually in the paper next week um, by Lamorna Ash, one of our own, who's spent t- t- a week on a Cornish deep sea trawler. Uh, it's fantastic, so lovely, fantastic piece of writing, and it's just a nice thing. So I, I think the essay form we talked about it uh, was it last week or the week before? Was it week before last? Week before, because you were because because you were here, and it was it was Brian Dillon. Brian Dillon, and, and I think. Th- is there a resurgence of the form? If you're recommending on this side so- of the, I mean, it never sort of went anywhere in America. Yeah, uh, they've always it, been it suddenly so got, great. It's, it's it, finally got trendy yeah. here, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah. So a lot of books that were published in America a couple of years ago, like with Ulysses uh, Notes from No Man's Land, for example, that's only now coming over and being published in the UK. Yeah. So that is, I think, that does reflect. A, it's on the way. Yeah. yeah. How interesting, Lucy. Um, what are you going to take? Well, I'm not really sure. I'm, I, I haven't got a holiday <laughs> planned. I know. No, I have thought about it. You should have thought it. about it. Oh, I'm literally just thinking about it for the first time <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah. No, I'm not. I thought this I was is just bit... googling as we as we're talking. <laughs> I would, books. but there's no yeah. connection. Yeah. Um, I haven't got a holiday planned, and I thought oh, I don't know what I'm going to read. But actually, what I am reading at the moment does that count? Yeah, that's and fine. I did yeah. have it when I was last away for for one day. Um, oh, it's a book I tried to steal from Fear, and she rightly wouldn't let me because she was sending it off for review to someone else. <laughs> that's so fair. I had to buy it. That's good professionalism from Fear. What is it? Um, it's I don't know what the name of it is. Yes, I do. Gastronomical Me by M. F. K. Fisher, which is ah. it, they're like little essays or vignettes. They're beautifully or produced, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's a lovely book. The foreword is by our own B. Wilson, and um, in fact, she mentions it when she's talking about her summer books. And and it sounds as though it's just about all the dinners she's had, but it's not at all. It's, and who is this person, Fisher? She's she's like, who is she? Thea? Well, I mean, in, <laughs> she's very well known in America. She's she's one of the doyens of of of. Well, I was going to say of food writing, but just of writing. Just John writing. John Updike said she was the poet of the appetites. W. H. Auden said she was, I think, the best prose stylist in yeah, America. That's what it says on that book. It just um, says there's no one writing really? better prose than this. And she's and somehow never that. really yeah. been received. I think as it's because we don't here. really trust people who like food either. A bit, we think it's a bit. Well, because like in, in England, food has been food has been so terrible for so long yeah. that people probably couldn't understand why anyone would want to write about food. Did she write about anything other than food? Absolutely. I mean. She writes about all sorts of things, and but she also happens to tell you about the meals. But she she writes about her childhood. She and writes then she beautifully goes to, about her childhood. Yeah, really lovely. And then she goes to France with her husband when they're young in the thirties, and it's just so different. They have kind of all sorts of awakenings, and one of them is about food and wine. But it's obviously not just that, and it's not the kind of she's not telling you how she feels constantly. In fact, she hardly ever tells you how she feels. Quite right too. Exactly. No, I'm no, absolutely no, with that. None of that. But but there are all sorts of impressions and observations and stories it's really really beautifully done so that's so that would be a re- that's what you are reading and what you'd recommend for people to read that's one of one of the things i would recommend yeah okay so review forthcoming in the tls hey. not by that's me. why i deprived you of them she wouldn't give me the book rebecca may johnson oh lovely there we go that's that'll be forthcoming with it yes excellent right then toby well, apart from Blood Meridian, which we have discussed, yes. um, I'm going to be War taking... War and Peace? Um, no? War and Peace, I, I always take that on holiday. Yeah. I'm going to be taking A Sport and a Pastime by James Salter. And the yes. reason is, American author James Salter, I, on the holiday that I've just been on, uh, during which I failed to get a tan, I <laughs> read James Salter's last novel, um, which is called All That Is, not to be confused with David oh, Zoloy's yeah. All That Man Is, which Thea's just read, um, which he wrote maybe three or four years ago, just before he died in his late 80s. So, you know, he, he, he wrote it at a, grand, at a grand old age. I've been meaning to read it for years. And who is he? Tell, tell us who James Salter because he's, he's almost a kind of forgotten man of, well, uh, of American I mean, letters he's, in a way. He's basically, he's a... He's a He's a, a good old-fashioned great American novelist. Yeah. He's, a, he's a contemporary of John Updike and um, and, and various other other sort of big beasts of American letters. Um, he never really got quite the recognition that the Updikes and the Mailers, for example, did. Although he wrote about similar things, partly because he wasn't quite as prolific, partly because he wrote screenplays as well, um, and partly because perhaps he just wasn't liked as much. But I think he's absolutely brilliant. All that is is, is a superb. I've never read any of him, and I, um, I think and, you, and, I, and I love Graham. I think you'd love him. Um, Sport and Pastime was, was published in 1967, so it's 50 years old, and it, you know, it deals with love and marriage and sex and su- success and career and, and various other big themes. He was also a, a fighter pilot um, for 12 years, I believe, and he fought in the Korean War. He started off in the Second World War and then went on and served during the Korean War. So he. 
he 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 deals with um, those kind of themes as well. Quite a muscular style. So quite I mean, a, very blokey. Quite a bloke. When, very and, bloke-y, and that's a grand, grand tradition of that. Mailer, not least. Exactly. Did Mailer like him? I, I feel. I like, think he did. Yeah, I yeah. think he did. And um, Richard Ford. Um, I think he's Richard Ford's favourite novelist. Um, says he's, no one writes better than than James Sauce. And is there is there many in the canon? Is there? There are there are maybe seven or eight novels. There's a memoir, and like I say, there are a few screenplays. But it's a sport in a pastime. It's supposed to be his best novel. And in a way, I've, I've started off in a strange way because I've read his final book um, and nothing else. But um, I'm quite excited to read this one. Yeah, it's brilliant. A- anything else? Is that your is that your one? Well, no, no. I've, I've, oh, I've bought, yeah, <laughs> there's, there's a pile of books tottering in the corner. There's, here. there's a pile of books. Um, there's this book by Vivek Shanbag called Gacha Gotcha. I've yeah. probably pronounced that wrong. Um, it is translated from the Kannada. Yeah. Uh, Who of us here uh, can say they haven't read this? Actually, well, exactly. Toby's got my version. Um, yeah, that's right. Yes. <laughs> if I look inside, will it say Lucy Dallas yeah. was here? Yeah. So it's a, he, he's an Indian novelist. There's some interesting Indian fiction around at the moment. Yes. Neil Mukherjee's um, A State of Freedom, which we've just extracted in the paper, which, which is, is which you love, which I love and is wonderful, and it's um, why we're extracting because you pretty got, much read it and they thought uh, we, have, that, we, have to, brilliant. we have to. Aaron Dassey Roy's new novel came out a couple of weeks ago, which people um, have liked. Which they? people Ministry have liked. Utmost happiness is Min- that is yeah. that it? The yeah. Ministry of Utmost is kind of an annoying title, but it sounds yeah. very very good. Did you read uh, the interview with her in the Guardian? It's, it's unbelievably annoying. Did you not? Know, no, this, I haven't. Extraordinary anecdote. Didn't reach me in Sardinia. Yeah, this is Decca Aikenhead, wasn't it? Yeah, and she said when a great interviewer. She is a great interviewer, and she plays this completely po faced and straight so I'll try to do the same so Aaron Artie when she'd written this book obviously there'd been a period where she hadn't written for a while and she said to her agent we need to auction this but we're not going to auction this uh, for money I want every publisher to write me a letter as to why they should publish it and then the letters come in and then she said I now need to consult the characters of the book oh see, I've heard about to, this to see whether uh, who should <laughs> whether they would it. allow me and purportedly she went with someone for less money because the characters wanted it and I emailed an agent a copy of this uh, article and said, that's a funny way of doing it. And the agent said, I know her agent and there's no way he'd have put up with that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, who knows? Anyway, so that was the anecdote so, of the... But it's a good so, book. So, so, Terrible so, anecdote. So, so Mukherjee and Roy, they're the, sort of the two big um, Indian novels of, of the summer. But everyone's been... Well, not everyone. Quite a few people have been telling me that, that this... Um, this it's short, isn't it? it and it has, the, it has the appeal of being extremely short as well. Um, so no, that's going to that's gonna be complete my trilogy of Indian novels this summer that's great well okay well I'll do mine uh, and then I'm going to ask you how many books you actually take when you go on holidays I always take a ridiculous sort of lumpy bag full of the sort of fear of not uh, of not having books I'm going to be reading Patrick O'Brien the naval historical novelist which Hornblower ahoy yeah but he's not he's kind of he's not even Hornblower. more he's even more salty sea dog than Hornblower how could it how could which it seas be? is he moving in he, he well all, all over the, the place seas. all it's, of the seas Napole- all seven of the seas yeah, yeah all seven of the seven <laughs> seas it's Napoleonic but people have always been said to me you in fact I found it, a friend of mine from uni um, set, I found the first book in the series Master and Commander oh, which was made a film with uh, it's very good isn't it Master and Commander the film the book. Well, the book, yeah, the book. I'm reading yeah. the book at the minute, and the film is uh, got Russell Crowe mm. as Jack Aubrey, and so the book. The, this this guy sent it to me and said, "Oh, you you now can read this seven thousand word super novel because there's twenty two books in it." So I, I I read it and I didn't really have time to think about it. So I'm started it again. So I'm going to try and get into Patrick O'Brien this summer. I'm going to reread Pride and Prejudice because it's okay, the 200th anniversary. I do more or less read it every year, and we've got a book a special book of uh, Jane Austen coming out TLS publishing all its old material around it which made me sort of consider the favourite my favourite Jane Austen novels which begins with Pride and Prejudice as my favourite Lucy you look slightly downcast at the prospect no, of Jane Austen no no not at all no 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 but I wouldn't have Pride and Prejudice what's your favourite I would say Emma really so I don't like oh, Emma the so person Emma. well but it's not it's not exactly that you like her I agree that um they're more likeable in Pride and Prejudice, some of them. You're going for Emma, Thea? I quite like Mansfield Park, yeah. but I do it? also quite like Northanger Abbey. Really? Yeah, the I mean, past- talking about pa- jo- yeah, genre novel. fiction, yeah. and I, I, do, I, do, yeah, I do quite enjoy that. Uh, so I'm going to read Pride and Prejudice, and Lucy, we had a conversation uh, about P.G. Woodhouse, which, as you know, I read it every day. I was going to say later on, can I say what I'm really taking yes. as well? Yes. <laughs> uh, is it P.G. Woodhouse? <laughs> 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 Definitely taking the Beano. 
But realistically, I'm going to take some some Woodhouse. Some so Smith. where did you get Tom P.G. Woodhouse? So what I did is is I read lots of Jeeves and Worcester, which is wonderful. And okay. then I sort of didn't want to read anything else in case it wasn't as good. Yeah. And then I read a bit of Blandings, which yeah. was wonderful. And yes. then by accident, as we discussed, I read the last Smith one. Leave it to Smith. Which and is I loved in, him Which is so set much. in Blandings. That's why I read it in the wrong order, because yeah. it's set in Blandings. And he's just the most wonderful yeah. creation I loved him so much, then I thought, I want to read everything that he's in. So what have you read thus far? I haven't yet, so I'm still on. I'm still on the last one, and I'm going to work back and From, do it in the right order. So you're going to start. So the first one is Mike and Smith, which is a schoolboy tale. I read that when I was a kid. Yeah, so it's fantastic. Which is fantastic. But, but it's, 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 it's for twelve-year-olds. Yeah. yeah, it's not. I can. That's all right. Which is fine. But the I book I'm going to reread over the summer is the greatest Smith book, which is called Smith Journalist. Mm. And he goes to New York with Mike on a cricket tour, and he obviously not plays cricket, so he takes over a magazine called Cozy Moments. Which is uh, for middle class people in America and has things about sort of lessons for the nursery. And he turns it into a campaigning newspaper that stops slum landlords. And it's this incredible Woodhouse novel because it's, it's got a depiction of a boxing match. It's got fights with gangsters. And all the way through it, there's this imperturbable vision of Smith with his monocle going through New York streets, fairly shady New York streets, fighting gangsters as a muckraker journalist as a muckraker journalist in the grand tradition of journalism some great things about journalism in it as well anyone who's yeah. involved in journalism loves it it's the, it's the great journalist that everyone says Scoop is the great journalist Scoop novel. I think is a little bit overrated I think it is honest. overrated and I think Smith Journalist is the great journalist novel so you've got so much pleasure ahead of you because mm. uh, the Smith Journalist and what's the, what's the other Smith one? There's Smith in the City? Smith in the City, yeah, where he goes and works in a bank, which P.G. Yeah. Woodhouse did before he became a writer. Cozy Moments, I think, I think you should consider changing the name of the TLS to Co- Cozy Moments. <laughs> the other thing that I genuinely did want it's to read... It's leading. But that's all right, people get used to it. Yeah. You know, in our, from the archives this week, when we've got this brilliant piece written in 1902 by someone who tells you what to read in 1902, it's brilliant. Oh, brilliant on a train, thing. what yeah. to read on a train. It's a good idea. Well, he basically though. says, don't, don't read. Unless you can't help it and you're a bookworm, don't read, sleep or eat. And then he says... <laughs> But if you see one that's attractive to you, Lucy. I read it though. Yeah. He <laughs> says, more often than not, your fellow passenger will be content with one of these amazing publications Comic Cag Mag, which sounds quite good, yeah. or Hoity Toity Bits. Nearly as good as Cozy Moments. What, there's a, there's a magazine called Hoity Toity Bits? Well, I don't know whether it was real or whether he's made it up, but but it doesn't matter. That sounds like it would be an entirely disreputable <laughs> magazine called Hoity Toity Bits, I think to if you were reading Cozy Moments yeah, and like Hoity Toity Bits, yeah. they might cancel It's like a version of Reader's Wives, is it? No, no, no. no. <laughs> Upper class Reader's Wives. Hoity Toity Bits, no? That's what Always I'd like to say. Always highbrow at the Yeah, TLS. I know, exactly. I'm just bringing the tone down. Have you ever, before we go, um, one of the pleasures I find of going on holiday, if you, particularly if you stay in a house, um, is picking up a book that's already there and discovering an author that way. Has that ever happened to you? I did it a couple of years ago. I've told Toby about this. I've recommended the Modesty Blaze novels. I was in a place in Kent and there was this sort of slightly water-damaged Modesty Blaze novel by Peter O'Donnell, I think his name is, these sort of 70s schlock um, genre is, novels. Is that the one where she, it's a, she's a woman, isn't she? She's yeah. just sort of, yeah, and don't her clothes fall off She takes her clothes off. It's this she weird, takes them off. Yeah, it's this right. weird combination of a... <laughs> They're all 70s, laughing, but it is true. Yeah, it's, it's true. Yeah. It's a weird combination of sort of 70s hoity schlock. Hoity-toity bits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not that hoity-toity, But it's oddly, there's a sort of feminist strain running through it as well, because it's not very... Yeah, it's not very... It's not very... It's not very... Sec- it's not... She is, she is the dominant, strong character. Um, she's not sexualised, really, in any way, despite often being naked. She has this friendship with a guy called Willie... Uh, but they have this amazing platonic relationship and it's 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 very schlocky but anyway I found it I'd never heard of it and I read it and I, then I read all seven of them I'm trying to foist them on Toby <laughs> at the minute so, yeah after Blood Meridian Toby's too busy reading them things in the original yeah exactly he's reading them in the original Sanskrit now have we got uh, has that ever happened to you can you ever have you ever found an author that way I love reading the first three pages of novels. So even if I've yeah. got three books in my suitcase yes, and I'm I staying somewhere, I, I will wander around the library, however meagre it is. Because even if it's three books, you know, sitting by the toilet or whatever, and I, and I, I like to start things just to get a flavour of them. To see what it'd be like. Because there's people here taking, you know, relatively cerebral books, and you just wonder that when they get on holiday and there's a tattered version of the Da Vinci Code... How many, of them, how many of them go, oh, I'm not, just, just have a look at it. Cause we'll, we'll, I am going to read him other to in a minute, yeah, yeah. but first... Because yeah. there, there, I mean, there is a pleasure in the good bad book, isn't there? Loads of pleasure, yeah. I, I read uh, John le Carre, not that that's a good bad book, I think they're, they're just good, aren't they? But it was a bit of a downer, I have to Which say. Which one did you read? Oh, I can't remember. I, last year a I took... A smiley one, yeah. in which things are a bit miserable. 
when someone gets tortured. <laughs> Tinker Taylor, well, it could be any of them, but Tinker, Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy has that in. There's a new Smiley novel out this There September. is. Will that be any good? I have no idea. Might just, be. Just, what's, just, his, what's his last... Uh, I think the previous one was an indelicate truth, which we gave a right old TLS drubbing. Did we? Yeah. Oh, okay. See, I, I read it when I, I read it in the archive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very, very, very funny pieces by Frederick Raphael. I, I recommend it. I really. Because I read Tinker Taylor when I was a kid, like too young, and because it was a sort of in a house filled with Len Dayton and sort of those sort of seventies crap that I had in my house. It was kind of the elevated version of that, and I read it. And I suppose didn't really fully understand. I reread it last year on holiday. I think that's a great holiday book. It is quite good, but I was looking for something light. And, you know, someone ended up really being tortured in a kind of Eastern German camp somewhere. So, no, it was gripping. Oh, um, so cheer us up there, Lucy. On that cheery note, if you want to read... I gave you the name... I gave you two alternative names for the TLS. Yes. (laughs) Cosy moments. And... Hoity-toity bits. Hoity-toity bits. That's all we have time for this week. I mean, it's it's a good name for the podcast. You know, we've already got quite a weird name for the podcast. Hoity-toity bits could also work. It's a spin-off. Yeah, the spin-off show. The more salacious younger sister. Yeah, the late-night version. late women's hour. Uh, Yeah. It is late, yeah. yeah is that any good? Late night women's hour. It is quite good, actually. Yeah. Oh, they, presented by Lauren Laverne. Could they call that hoity-toity bits? Could anything... I mean, because now you say it, virtually anything would be improved by being called hoity-toity bits. That's my thesis. If we've learnt anything today, and I think we have, that is really what we've learnt. We hope you enjoyed this trip down memory lane. We'll be back with new weekly episodes from September the 10th. Till then, head to the website, the-tls.co.uk, to keep up with a weekly magazine. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.